Thank you all for joining us for another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite podcast from the Pre-Raphaelite Society. My name is Sherry, and today I have Tim Berenger with us. He's a renowned art historian specializing in British and American art. He's held prestigious positions at institutions such as Yale and the University of Cambridge. He has also authored several books and co-edited collections of essays on various art topics, one that I'm sure many of you are familiar with called Reading the Pre-Raphaelites, also Men at Work, Art and Labor in Victorian Britain, and David Hockney, 82 Portraits and One Still Life. He has also curated numerous exhibitions and has been recognized for his teaching excellence. His expertise includes British art, Victorian visual culture, and the art of the British Empire, as well as an American 19th century painting. Please help me in joining Tim to our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's very nice to have a chance to talk about the Pre-Raphaelites, one of my favorite things to do. I know we've gone back and forth for a while trying to get this scheduled, and you've got a really busy schedule. So glad we finally have this time today. What we'll start with is what originally stirred your interest in the Pre-Raphaelites? Yes, it's a great question. Um, I think it was when I was a second year, first year undergraduate at the University of Cambridge studying history. And I went down to the old Tate Gallery on uh, Millbank, where Tate Britain is now. And of course, there was this exhibition of the Pre-Raphaelites, which was still, I think, probably the most comprehensive exhibition of the early years of the Pre-Raphaelite movement up to 1860 ever. And it was mind-blowing. I mean, I was already interested in Victorian art, having grown up near Manchester, uh, between Manchester and Leeds, so you know, able able to see those collections. Uh, and I was reading a lot of Ruskin and Carlyle as part of my degree, so I was primed. But this exhibition, you know, curated by a group um, at at the Tate, um, absolutely knocked me sideways. It was an absolute revelation to see those paintings all together, year by year, simple chronological layout um, against, you know, good light, against reasonable colors, and just to just to get a chance to see works from private collections, and to get to know the artists who weren't familiar from the from the big uh, northern galleries, you know, some of the, uh, particularly some of the women artists who were just creeping into the sides of the canon at, at that point. Anyway, it was it was a revelation. And I remember thinking even then, I love these paintings, but this exhibition doesn't say anything about them. It just says here they are. In fact, if I remember rightly, the labels were a little bit embarrassed. You know, it didn't it didn't really say what was blindingly obvious, which is these are great works of art. It was very mm-hmm. interested in the relationships between the people and the kind of quaintness and the quirkiness. And, uh, you know, it, it certainly didn't make the big claim that an impressionist show at the time would have made, which is self-evidently these are great paintings. So I came away thinking, I love the paintings, but I, I'm sure there's more to be said about them. And that's basically what I've been trying to do ever since. I totally understand what you're talking about with labels to paintings. And sometimes you feel like it's just that very basic information or more of gossipy, especially sometimes with pre-Raphaelite works, people tend to head towards the gossip side of it versus what makes these such beautiful works and why they should be more recognized getting brought into it more by that exhibition what what area did you want to focus on to bring more information to people yeah well it was um certainly coming out of that degree in in history i was very interested in the politics of the mid-victorian period and in particularly in the way that and this don't forget this was in the moment of margaret thatcher's administration and extreme right wing politics in in Britain and the destruction of all the traditional manufacturing industries. So literally before the Pre-Raphaelites exhibition, there was an, 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 a steel industry in Sheffield, for example. And after it, there wasn't. It was closed down as a direct result of government action. So, you know, it was and, and there were there were sort of fights on the street. There were minor strikes. It was a very intense moment of effectively old fashioned class conflict in the in the real classic sort of E.P. Thompson sense of the word that was out of the window um, mm-hmm. you know, on the way to the exhibition. So in the exhibition, you could hardly help but see the same things. Um, and of course, the painting that fascinated me and had done since I wrote an essay on it at 
high school, would you believe, um, Ford Maddox Brown's work was uh, was right there in the center of the pre-Raphaelite exhibition, along with the portrait of James Lethart, um, who commissioned a small version of it. Um, you know, so it was the politics of labor and the politics of class and the way that the pre-Raphaelites articulated an, 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 a radical position through mm-hmm. the visual appearance of their paintings. That's what didn't come through the existing interpretations. And that's what struck me, probably because of what I was reading and because of the times around me, the zeitgeist, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I went on to uh, do my PhD, not not on the pre-Raphaelite specifically, but on um, representations of labor across visual culture, including print culture, ethnographic publications, um, and uh, landscape paintings, as well as as well as Maddox Brown, which was the first the first thing I looked at in that uh, that dissertation, which became the book you mentioned, uh, Men at Work. And I think what's really interesting is the way that an exhibition, by putting objects on the wall and allowing people to see them together, then brings forth a wave of scholarship. So there was no, yeah. there was very traditional monographic scholarship, excellent stuff, but there were really no big arguments about the pre-Raphaelites until we all saw that show and started arguing about the pre-Raphaelites, you know. Um, so there was a, a review by uh, Griselda Pollock and Deborah Cherry, which stirred up tremendous excitement around gender and the pre-Raphaelites. And then there was a book called Pre-Raphaelites Reviewed, edited by Marcia Poynton, which published a lot of young scholars who were kind of you know energetic and angry and full of (laughs) full of vim and vigor um if not always you know the most uh, polished writers and it was a great it was a great book with a great introduction of kind of fiery call to arms that that, you know more needs to be done with this work Mm -hmm. um and then shortly after that i found myself teaching at the university of birmingham which of course is a is a great place to be a pre-raphaelite scholar that was my first first proper job um where at the um, art gallery liz pretchon was there as the curator briefly rehanging the collection so oh, wow it's an amazing <laughs> conversation uh, you know a, a really enjoyable synergy between curatorial and, and university thinking and uh there was a big burn jones exhibition in 1998 as well which we did a conference about so there was just a lot of energy at that time and of course, one of the best things in the world is to sit with a bunch bunch of bright students, you know, sitting on the floor in front of something like, um, you know, uh, the the last of England or an English mm-hmm. afternoon paintings by Ford Maddox Brown that you can't really do in reproduction because there's so much detail, so much precision, and you know, some of those students are now off doing their own, you know, teaching themselves, which is which is really nice. But it was really those conversation with those young bright young people and with Liz that led me to write the little reading the pre-Raphaelites books so you know that was that was the next thing uh and a lot of those pictures are in Birmingham um mm-hmm. you know it's it's very troubling to me that at the moment if you go to Birmingham you can't see most of those paintings they're not on the wall and I hope that when the collection is reinstalled fully you know people will be able to find whatever they want in the pre-Raphaelites because of course they look different in 2023 from what they looked in 1998 or 1957 or 1857 you know when they were shown in America for example Um, so we each generation kind of creates a new pre-Raphaelite vision if you like. Definitely and it's great that one exhibition just created all of that not controversy, but all that spurred so many people into different areas of research and bringing out all these different arguments, especially, I always try to reinforce to people when they're like, Victorian, you know, like, why, why do you care? And I was, there's so much going on that still resonates with today's society. And so I can imagine sitting with students in front of you know, a Ford Maddox Brown or something, because the works, when you see them in person, it's completely different than on paper or on video. That it's it's one of the ironies of that period that, it, you know, it's it's exactly what Walter Benjamin described as the age of mass reproduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly the period we're talking about. And yet, strangely enough, the paintings that completely, you know, don't work really in, in reproduction are early pre-Raphaelite paintings even though 
everyone for many years had a you know had a, a postcard of Ophelia pinned to their bedroom wall when they were a teenager. Nonetheless, right. only when you actually see Ophelia, uh, or as we did amazingly once see it under you know tungsten lighting that the conservators were using do you get the real oh. the sheer <laughs> you know the sheer ingenuity of the surface and you know what what some people would resist but what i would call the, the modernity of it as well the, the influence of daguerreotype photography and the mm-hmm. sense of scientific uh you know scientific precision that you see in it right so i know you've worked on several exhibits um, such as Tate 2012, Victorian Radicals, and others, do you feel like, is there different ways that the Pre-Raphaelites have been discussed in those exhibits, or has there been a procession towards a certain conversation that trying to bring to the table? Yeah, well, of course, they're all collaborative exhibitions, and that's the fun thing about exhibitions is that you're not, you know, you're not the single author. It's always a question of working with a group of people. So, um, for the Tate exhibition, Jason Rosenfeld and Alison Smith and I had a lot, and Diane Wagoner in Washington had a lot of discussions about exactly how we wanted to present the Pre-Raphaelites, and you know, a lot of people over the previous decade had been moving towards the idea that this was this was a a British avant-garde. Uh, that it was a kind of modern painting that cut through and rejected, um, you know, uh, existing hierarchies and, and values, and did so in a way that was distinctively kind of machine age modern. Um, so we, you know, we came up with the title um, Victorian Avant Garde, or the subtitle rather. Um, and uh, although interestingly, the National Gallery in Washington found that too radical acclaim so they they backed <laughs> and called it something else but anyway the, the book says victorian avant-garde which is which is what uh what we wanted to call it and the you know the idea was to think about how the various different moments of the pre-raphaelite um sort of extravaganza are in different ways modern so you know that there was a kind of um gothic as modern in the 1840s and then a sort of daguerreotype realism with millet and holman hunt a kind of medievalist modern in the early rossettis an aestheticist modern with the 1860s work and then a kind of symbolist moment right at the end so in each case it was a group of artists redefining what modern art can be and that's how we wanted to present it Uh, and it was very interesting that it got um you know, it got at least one or two critics very, very angry because I'm <laughs> um, noticed notably Roberta Smith in the New York Times, who is very committed to a textbook account of modernism as something invented by a number of men in France at a particular mm-hmm. time. It involves, you know, the sketch like facture, and that's what it that's what they taught in the 1960s and 70s, and that's still an orthodoxy in, in many places. So to claim that a highly finished painting could be uh, an avant-garde work was, you know, it was, it was um, a kind of uh, defying of an orthodoxy. You know, it was, it was a, it was a, a dreadful thing to do and it caused a big row. However, the interesting thing was the big row caused more people to go and see the show. So right. visitor numbers <laughs> actually spied, after Roberta said, don't go and see it because it's rubbish. Everyone went to see it to see what she was on about. And actually, of course, mo- I think most of them liked it. They may not have totally agreed with our, argument but they certainly enjoyed the show so that was a really interesting kind of lesson in um how an exhibition can propose something really make it make an argument make a thesis um now the the other one you mentioned uh victorian radicals which was a collaboration with um a, a group of people at birmingham principally mm-hmm. uh, victoria osborne who's the keeper of fine art there um that was different because the collection is different and the museum setting was different so the tate show was a a flat art show principally there was one room of william morris but most of it was was paintings and drawings prints uh photographs and the victorian radicals was a very much a three-dimensional show so uh it included their great paintings but it all which i'd written about years earlier but it also included a significant amount of decorative arts much of it made by women connected with the birmingham school of art so it really did redefine the, the canon by arguing that you know the pre-raphaelite movement is as important in three dimensions as it is in, in two um and that was it was very exciting to see that installed in i think seven galleries across the 
United States, although right through the whole pandemic, so it <laughs> got uh, horribly chopped about uh, in terms of its schedule. But it, it did it did get seen by a large number of people across the U.S. and I think they really enjoyed the, you know, the sheer kind of variety of objects. And in a way, we what I think we did successfully in the show, even if it was, you know, it was a bit of a Victorian. Uh, excess uh you know to the eye uh, there was there was a sense of excess but we did manage to to articulate two histories which are normally told separately one the avant-garde painting story and two design reform and the arts and crafts movement which are normally sort of in two museums there's tate and vna or there's you know there's 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 a, a paintings gallery and a, and a decorative arts gallery at the met for example and with those things together you suddenly realize all the same people are doing both you know all the mm-hmm. way through. um and that is a burn jones painting a decorative art object or a fine art object it's both um it was really exciting to see that coming together so that was a very different kind of intervention from the this is Vic- this is avant-garde painting point that we were making at the, the tape um so you know th- they were two different different exhibitions from different groups of people that i loved working on in both cases I did get to see Victorian radicals in San Antonio and I knew I wanted to work with the pre-Raphaelites for my thesis, but I didn't know what direction I wanted to take and what better way than to go and see them in person. Something that isn't always available here in the United States easily. And so we went and I was just so in love that the arts Uh, decorative arts was included with the paintings because that like you mentioned it's always been so separate you had to go to one campus to see the decorative and one to see paintings in many museums and so to see them all together and see how that story just you know flowed and worked together and all the female artists and workmanship in it and that was just such a revelation and then I'm Right before then, I started seeing where I work incorporate more decorative arts into the gallery. So it, it's a great trend because it's bringing that story like full circle. Like these people were working at the same time and they're continuing on this along the same aesthetic viewpoint. But that exhibit just blew me away because, again, first time I got to see a lot of the pieces in person. And I was like, I've seen that one in a book and that one and that one. And I was going through the exhibit and fell in love with Holman Hunt's The Finding of the Savior. And so that that started my whole thesis project. But I was just blown away by, like you mentioned, the amount of detail you can see in person. And just it's so fine. And some of them look like photographs or or digital images, and they're hand painted. And but well, I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed the show, and you got got it was it was a beautiful installation in San Antonio. And of course, it would look quite different in each of the different galleries because the yes in house curators, you know, applied their own skills and vision to it. So it was it was almost like six or seven different different shows. Um, and you know, that that was a delight every time to see mm-hmm. how you know it looked uh, one way in. Barrow Beach and another way in Seattle and another way here at the Yale Center for British Art where I finally right. install it myself with with colleagues here um but uh, that w- that was delightful and we did put a seat in front of um, the finding of the savior because there's so much to look at you need a bench to sit on while you're definitely absorbing <laughs> it uh, I mean after all it was it was a subject of a one painting exhibition when it was first shown in London in 1860 mm-hmm. so you, know, you 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 paid a shilling and you just saw that one picture and you got a five page guidebook to tell you what was going on. So um, it's it's a perfect time for someone to have a good audio guide actually is a painting like that, which can yes. you know reveal uh, a lot of the symbolism, which is so complex and so intricate. Um, but of course, when people figure it out, they're absolutely thrilled. You know, they, they, it's it's a it's a it is a re- it's a revelatory painting in quite a literal sense. Oh, it's one of those, every time I look at it, I still am digging out different details. I'm like, how did I miss that? That's so obvious. And it was one of those shows, definitely benches were (laughs) well-placed. But uh, that's fantastic. Because I mean, what what was so nice (laughs) about the show is that uh, 
Um, well, actually, we, we, you know, it's very interesting to see how these paintings strike people who've never seen them before. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a, a version of the Tate Victorian avant-garde show much changed, but nonetheless went to Moscow, where, um, you know, of course, that's a that's a thing of the past now where exhibitions traveling to to the Pushkin Museum, unfortunately, but but um, uh, tragically, in fact, but uh, in in 2011, was it 12? Um, it was fascinating to see the exhibition appeal not to, as it were, your mum's crowd, but to hipsters, to, you know, fashionably mm -hmm. dressed, you know, supermodel types in 12 inch heels and, and dripping with jewellery and then punky, young, punky kind of trendy, you know, it obviously the word went out among young people that this was an exhibition to see. Of mm -hmm. course, they were made by punky young people who were kind of you know the hipsters of 1848 and so uh it it worked extraordinarily well and i had a great conversation with a group of you know teenagers from a moscow school who were learning english and you know that all the adjectives they were using for the pre-raphaelites were things they picked up from pop music you know it's it's cool. oh amazing hip it's, uh, <laughs> and 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 clearly it was kind of you know pop art of a sort it, it spoke mm -hmm. directly to the to the teens and twenties, um, and a lot of them hadn't been taught not to like it. Because I think one of the interesting things I is think that you know your average survey course in some some sort of you know I don't know any institution that's maybe still teaching it the way it always has will tell you this is bad art. And oh um, yeah, you know one of the one of the ways that that was significant in the middle of the twentieth century was to compare it to Soviet socialist realism. Mm -hmm. Which indeed did have strong links to the pre-Raphaelites, and that they, they um, and of course, I, I actually like Soviet socialist realism anyway myself. But but that was a kind of way of marginalizing this work that someone like Clement Greenberg would use. You know, he would put it all in a box as, as kind of reactionary, figurative art when you know liberty and freedom is served by abstraction, right? Um, <laughs> and that was a very powerful argument, you know, in the Cold War. Uh, but of course, it it doesn't fly now at all. It doesn't make any sense, particularly since we find that the CIA was covertly funding abstract expressionist exhibitions. <laughs> so <laughs> the freedom argument becomes a little more tenuous. But but it's really fascinating to me to see now that you know a lot of younger people haven't been told this is bad, so they use mm -hmm. their eyes and they love it because actually it looks like a lot of the you know, the sort of hyper-realist art fixating on questions of the body and identity and gender and race that they see in contemporary art exhibitions, mm -hmm. photography, digital photography, online stuff, you know, it, it often has a strongly pre-Raphaelite feel to it. So this work looks more modern in some ways than Monet or Sisley or, you know, Morisot. And I think that's a really interesting thing of the last few years that wasn't true when I first talked about this stuff. Yeah, I've definitely seen a shift in the last few years. And when they interviewed Andrew Lloyd Webber for the podcast, and he was talking about the portrait of Sophie Gray and how if you cover the clothes, it looks just like any teenager in any period that it just translates. And you, everyone, you know, like when you look at it, you go, yeah, I know that girl. Mm -hmm. And so a few of my coworkers had listened to that and they're like, what's Sophie Gray? And they were asking me for a list of like, what do all these paintings, like, I don't know the reference. And so I sent them the paint, you know, the images of the paintings. And they were like, that looks like my niece. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, this is why part of the reason I fell in love with it from, you know, is it's so relatable, even though it's over a hundred years old. Right. I was like mm -hmm. the Victorian age. I was like, y'all are missing out then they go up and they started looking at like the impressionists and stuff and they're like even other french artists but they're like okay i i relate to this but i don't relate to like the impressionist style i was like yeah i feel you i'm not gonna knock any one style over another but no i find right. it relatable <laughs> it's really interesting that the way that we naturalized impressionism as for a long time is like the only way to paint and if yes. you don't paint like this is what Roberta Smith was saying, if you don't paint like that in 1860, you're wrong. 
you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to paint. And mm -hmm. I think one of the nice things about the, um, you know, the much more sort of uh, ecumenical approach to art history that is true now is that, you know, th there are many ways to make a great painting in 1860. And mm -hmm. you know, Sophie Gray is one and, you know, Dejeuner sur l'herbe is another one, but then something by Repin is another one and something by Menzel in Germany is another one and Australia and America and, you know, Thomas Aikens. And, you know, so, so you can, you can actually embrace multiple different types of art making without having to have a sort of story that has a starting point, you know, of mm -hmm. the FCI or cave painting or whatever it is, or Giotto and an end point, Picasso or, you know, Warhol or, and and the idea that there's only one good kind of painting at one time, I think, is right. a really is something we really need to get get rid of. And and the pre-Raphaelites will do that for you because they didn't even have one style of painting themselves. They no. have this such a kind of complicated, <laughs> uh, kind of unresolved paradox that Dante Gabriel Rossetti and William Holman Hunt are close collaborators, but their works look, except in a very very quick moment at the beginning their works look so different i mean you yeah. couldn't get more different artists um so you know and, and yet then when you start to put them all together you suddenly see something like you know some of the more aesthetic holman hunts actually have a lot more rossetti in them than you thought and actually when you look at the way that rossetti paints an apple or a flower it could almost be holman hunt even if that flower is in a composition which is completely fantastical so i i find that diversity and coherence of the pre-raphaelites endlessly fascinating i think that's part of the fascination for people too with it is it's not all just one straight style everyone you could have put them all together and you don't know who painted what and they all had their own identity but like you said they all have different aspects where you can tell they were collaborating and they're like, Oh, but I like how he does that. So I'm going to borrow that, but it's still going to be my style wow. and the colors, like they shared a lot of the same color palettes and you see this continuation, even with the different waves as you go into from the original core group to Rossetti and when William Morris and Burne Jones join right. in and, yeah, there's a continuity, but um, I think that's what's so fascinating to a lot of people is you might look at and go, you know, Hunt's not my thing, but I respect him, but not my thing. But man, yeah, like I can't get enough Burn Jones, you know, and but they're all part of that same story. Right. And, and, and one of the interesting things was, um, you know, the, the difference between the 84 Tate show and our, our 2012 one was that the 84 one was strictly year by year. So, and it was very exciting in a way to see what was being painted exactly at the same time. And that was all in mm -hmm. one room, 1848 to 50. And then the next room is 50 to 52. And 50, you know. and you did get a sense of the conversations of, between the artists, but you also got a kind of chaotic sense of, you know, that nothing made any sense, really. It was just a, a, a almost a random assortment of different you know, history paintings, portraits, drawings. So, so when right. we did the show, we wanted each room to have a visual coherence. So we had a you know room from the 1840s, which was mainly revivalist painting um, with a lot of gold and a lot of pointed arches and a lot of halos. And then you went into a realist room where suddenly it was, you know, Ophelia and... Uh, uh, you know, Christ in the house of his parents, all these, all these dream. Actually, no, that wasn't in there. I tell a lie. It was, it was the, um, <laughs> some of the other ones, uh, from the early, very early years were in there. And then you went into, uh, you know, into a room with Morris and Burne Jones. And then we had a room called Beauty, which was all about the aesthetic movement and one called Nature, which was the later Ruskinian, uh, works and, and, and photographs. And I think in terms of understanding or, you know, appreciating uh, Victorian art and, and pre-Raphaelites that gave a more coherent set of propositions you know um, it, it didn't give however the kind of very precise chronology so we were mixing stuff up and kind of blurring some of the some of the, the chronological boundaries but it was amazing to stand in one room with all of the significant pre-Raphaelite landscapes and then one room mm -hmm. with a lot of the modern life subjects together and one room with all the single heads of of, of female sitters, you know. Uh, so 
I think I think it was it was a, a successful experiment. And of course, you could also change the wall color in each room yes. to dramatize that. So we had a gorgeous turquoise for the beauty room and a kind of severe gray for the you know work, workmen and and laborers and a, a deep green for the lands. You know, you get the general idea. It was it was very fun um, mm-hmm. thinking about that. thinking about it aesthetically, thinking about how it looks. Right. Well, and I could see how a chronological would be a bit chaotic with them because they all hit different different themes with their works at different points in their career. And so taking it and grouping it by theme, then you're getting a different form of chronology. But it's almost easier to look at because you're able to focus like, oh, all landscapes, all portraits and take it in. <laughs> Exactly. And I think, you know, I think that the other thing is if you if you do do it and you approach the entire topic strictly chronologically, it's almost going to insist on a biographical emphasis. You know, yes. who was whose mistress when and who was whose model when and which studios did they share and, and all of that, which is all good stuff. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it can kind of reduce the paintings to a kind of illustration of someone's life rather than yes. allowing them to be sort of aesthetic statements on their own terms. And I think that was one of the problems with the earlier pre-Raphaelite literature, that it was very focused on, you know, the narratives. A lot of it was written, the, the early books were written by family members, you know, who were, you know, rightly interested in the, the, the character and the lives of these people, also interested in tidying them up and editing out the the, the embarrassing bits sometimes. Right. Um, <laughs> But you know that, and and that sort of entered popular consciousness, and it's it's still fascinating that whereas a group of young people will not say what happened on Ruskin's wedding night or you know all of that stuff, um, anyone over about sixty seems to know all of those stories about Janie and Lizzie and and you know the the, the wedding night and the mm-hmm. you know all of the all of the stuff, and it's kind of. Uh, it's a bit of a, a joke. These these silly prudish Victorians or these raunchy Victorian, you know, mm-hmm. it, that's all good fun. But it gets in the way of enjoying the actual art. In the end, it becomes a sort of a, a sideshow. Um, so we tried to avoid doing too much with biography in 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 Victorian radicals and Victorian avant garde, you know, because it's a it, you know ultimately it doesn't it's not that interesting and it doesn't really matter. You know, to me. No, at the end of the day, it doesn't. And like you said, it becomes a distraction for a lot of people. I That was one thing when I worked on my thesis work. I was like, I'm not going to get into all that, that part of the biography. I'm just focused on, you know, the model was Jane Morris. The artist was Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I'm not going into the background because it's going to take away from the actual work of art. And it's not adding anything. And I had some people criticize me for that. And I was like, no, I'm holding to my guns on this. That's great. Yes. I mean, uh, I, I think the the current uh, Rossetti, the Rossetti's show at, the, mm-hmm. at Tate Britain navigates that very well. Because obviously you need to know the biography. You need to know who right. Christine was. And you need to know who, who Jane was and so on. Um, but it 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 manages to navigate between those specifics and the bigger questions really very well, I think. And and uh, I was really pleased to see that because there's a real danger with the Rossetti story that it turns into stuff about coffins and digging people up and you know all. Right. I mean, it's, it's a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty juicy tale. Um, right. But you know the juicy tale doesn't actually explain why the pictures are good um, or the poetry, and that's what the Tate show I think very nicely does do. That and see, and that that was one of my fears when I heard what the subject that of that show and who what artists they were going to involve in it. I was like, ooh, this could be really good, or it can go totally sideways. And I was like, I, I'm going to have faith because people are more aware right now of trying to you know make sure that there's a good story behind the the images versus oh let's just throw the gossip out there. Exactly. And, and drag people in with like, ooh, the sauciness of the topic. Um, now, I know you also worked on modern pre-Raphaelite visionaries in 2022. Um, tell me a little bit about that show. 
well, it was, I wasn't a curator of that. I just wrote an essay for the for the catalogue. The curator was Alice Eden, who did her PhD at the Courtauld um, on, I think, Frederick Cayley Robinson, who's a, not a, you know, a household name uh, um, anymore, though if you'd been in London in the 1910s, you probably would have heard of him. Um, and he was a third or fourth generation artist, um, sort of influenced by aspects of pre-Raphaelitism but by no means a, a pre-Raphaelite painter so it was he was the sort of discovery uh, artist at the at the core of the exhibition which is why it had this strange sounding title modern pre-Raphaelite visionaries as, as you know it's, it's sort mm-hmm. of it covers it covers a lot of ground that title but it's exactly what you saw because the paintings were noticeably modern uh, in the sense that you could see that they belonged to the same era as Edvard Munch or, you know, some of these um, uh, symbolist artists of the turn of the century, even Gauguin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet they were also definitely pre-Raphaelite because a lot of the imagery and the compositions reflected and paid homage to Holman Hunt, Rossetti, uh, Millet. Um, And then then they were visionaries because a lot of them had um, either religious or sort of spiritual um subjects or um, or sort of erotic subjects that had a, a sort of sense of you know transporting you into a into a, another realm about them so it was a really fascinating show and i mean it's it's fascinating because all of the nearly all the paintings were from public collections and i think wow. not about three or four of them were regularly on show so these were things from the storerooms of manchester liverpool you know Leeds, Bradford. Amazing. Um, they've been cleaned. Uh, there's a nice, a nice catalogue which records it. You know, each each work very well, and it was just a revelation. I actually was able to take a, a busload of students who'd been studying the pre-Raphaelites to see the show, um, and uh, you know, we were all thinking, "Oh, this is fairly minor stuff." Before we got into it. Um, because there's you know, very few famous pictures that get reproduced in textbooks uh, in this show. Mm-hmm. But it was probably the most absorbing, you know, it's only one big room, it's like 50 paintings, 60 paintings perhaps, but we were there for two hours and I had wow. to drag <laughs> drag everyone out in the end because, you know, we had to get back on the road. But it was it was thrilling uh, because you haven't seen the pictures before. So you see right, that. right absolutely fresh and there were you know uh, interesting women artists like Eleanor Fortescue Brickdale and Marianne Stokes and uh, there were a lot of artists who were in the kind of late 19th century Royal Academy but strongly influenced by the pre-Raphaelites you know some artists I'd I'd never heard of you know and I've been working on this my whole life Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I think the work that Alice did was really important and then having selected the picture she gathered together a group of scholars to sort of respond to them so the book is is interesting because a lot of us wrote short pieces and we got very excited about writing about pictures that we hadn't seen before um so right, it, it right. was a lovely it was a lovely exhibition and i you know it's it's a kind of model for the sort of show that can be done on a relatively small budget um which can really leverage the field you know and then i think it went to the watts gallery uh, near London, which offered a, a larger audience to see it um, uh, there as well, uh, in a slightly reduced form. Uh, you know, it's it's fantastic that these smaller shows are doing the work that a big big institution wouldn't dare to do. I mean, Tate right. couldn't put on this show, or they could actually just by going to their own basement, but they they wouldn't because it's not big name, it's not big box office. Mm-hmm. But actually. You'll never look at the 19th century quite the same again, or the early 20th when you've seen that show. So it was, it was, it was delightful. And I love to hear that it was all stuff that wasn't commonly on view. That was the storage pieces. That's one of those things I love. Whenever where I work, they pull out pieces from storage for to complement a visiting exhibit or something, and people are like, oh, "It's from your permanent collection." I was like. But we have so much in storage that you've never seen, that we've never seen who work there. Mm. And we're geeking out. And the curators get so excited about it because that's what they got to do is go through and pull pieces that aren't on view. And they're like, Especially and the fact that you clean. guys spent- I mean, that's That's the other yes. thing. A lot of these works are just, you know, they weren't in bad condition. In fact, they were in excellent condition. They just had discolored varnish. So a mm-hmm. simple surface clean 
you know, and some nice new glass or plexi to, you know, which won't reflect, uh, will make a, a painting look completely different from from how you might have seen it with a flashlight in the in the basement of, <laughs> of exactly yeah. a little bit of conservation there and yeah it changes the work so it's you know those moments i love hearing when stuff gets taken out of storage especially if it's always in storage then everyone gets to enjoy it at least for a small bit or refined lost works type thing now i know you're working on some projects currently could you tell me about some of your new projects? Well, the, in the pre-Raphaelite uh, world, I'm collaborating, uh, although I'm uh, the, with two other people who are actually the lead curators, that's Liz Pretjohn and Peter Trippi, on an exhibition which is going to break new ground because it's going to be held in Italy. So the title is I Pre-Raphaeliti, you know, it's the pre-Raphaelite, <laughs> but Italian. And, um, and then the, the subtitle is Modern Renaissance. Um, so Ipre Raffaeliti um, will be an exhibition that does three things. One is to put together uh, a group of, of uh, pre-Raphaelite paintings which directly relate to Italian art in some way. Uh, so um, a lot of a lot of the uh, pre-Raphaelite works, of course, reference paintings from the Italian Renaissance and that uh, and, and even earlier uh, late medieval. And that they, that group will be the center of the exhibition. But what's new about it is that there will also be um, an important group of actual pre-Raphael paintings. So paintings from the 15th wow. century, uh, which, of course, are plentiful in Italy and can be uh, borrowed and, and in a way that they can't in England. I will say that we had one um renaissance painting in our tate exhibition and it was a huge labor to get it from the national gallery which is about 300 yards away mm -hmm. uh, the lorenzo monaco uh, hanging in the uh next to next to the uh, to, to the mille um isabella in the tape in this case in forley in italy in this beautiful um uh, gallery which is itself a uh, converted monastery so it's a perfect setting for this um we will be able to have you know numerous um panel paintings, Renaissance panel paintings. And then there'll be a chance to actually think about what it was that the pre-Raphaelites took from early painting and how they're different. So pre-actual pre-Raphael and then pre-Raphaelite next to each other. So that's that'll be amazing. Really exciting. But then there's a then there's a third, a third component, which is something that our colleagues, our, our co-curators in Italy are working on because it's very specific to them which is to look at the influence of the British pre-Raphaelites on Italian symbolist art of the 1890s and 1900s, people like uh, Giovanni Segantini and a whole load of artists of whom, you know, very few people have ever heard. Even in the canon of Italian art, they're not part of the big groups like the Macchiaioli or, you know, they're, they're sort of scattered around. But, but actually the influence of Burne Jones in particular is really strong in Italian painting so the the show will have early italian pre-raphaelite and then post pre-raphaelite italian pictures and it's very very exciting to think about how that might change the way we look at some fairly familiar works and we and we have already secured very generous loans from tate and other lenders so it will definitely be a, a sort of starry lineup um, so i'm very excited to see that show myself that sounds amazing especially yeah, like the first part where you were just saying being able to see Italian pre, you know, Raphael uh, against the pre raphaelites but then to add how the pre raphs influenced Italian artists. Um, that that just sounds amazing to see how all of these interplay together and to see them side by side. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there's, of course, there's also a lovely story of, you know, Rossetti finally comes home to Italy. Um, so right. <laughs> That's a that's a nice um, uh, a nice opportunity to to think about um, you know this it, it an artist who although his entire life was spent in England uh, somehow remained Italian in some way I mean he wrote in Italian he read Italian he spoke Italian um, right and kind of painted in Italian in some ways so so that will also be uh, something that we can really judge differently when we see the paintings you know in that setting. That'll be great. And, and I love how that could even shift research focus and and bring new light to something that's changed. I feel like 
the research in the field right now is just evolving so quickly and so many different topics are being brought up. So um, that'll be great to see what comes of it. Are there any other projects you're working on currently with the pre-Raphaelites or that period? Well, um, I'm finishing. Uh, well, I've been saying this for some years, so I will. <laughs> I'm still. Fit. It's, a, it's a. It's a. It's got ing at the end. It certainly isn't finished. But I'm working on a book on art and music uh, in Britain, which runs from the 1840s to the 1970s, which is why it's taking oh, me so wow. long to do. But uh, obviously, um, Victorian uh, matters are the first. The first third of the book, and there's a long section on the aesthetic movement and of course the idea of all art aspiring to the condition of music and you know my question in coming to that was what music actually what was the music what what is pre is there pre-raphaelite music mm-hmm. uh, and you know there is a very very interesting story to be told about uh, morris and burn jones in particular who are keen amateur singers at oxford and the rediscovery of uh, madrigals and, and early music, early church music, and the way that that influenced uh, the visual and the visual influenced the the musical. Um, and then there's a kind of gothic revival of of music as well as one, which, which relates, of course, to stained glass very directly because the music's sung in church. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I argue that the, you know, in that early pre-Raphaelite moment, there's a kind of total work of art you know what what Wagner called the Gesamtkunstwerk the, the, the an artwork in which all the different media come together so stained glass wood carving you know gothic windows the the um, ironwork all the stuff that Pugin created for these gothic revival churches in the 1840s and early 50s um but the thing that we've often missed is that that only comes to life when there's music in it um, which is why, you know, whenever I take a group of students to London, I always make them go to Evensong at All Saints Margaret Street because mm-hmm. you actually hear the music and you see the sun through the stained glass and you smell the smells and you hear the bells and you get the whole sense of what, uh, you know, what a, a revivalist in the sense of a Gothic revivalist um, church service um, would have done for its, uh, you know, for its con- congregation, which includes people like uh, W.E. Gladstone, who was a friend of Millet, and so on. Um, anyway, I, so I'm trying to uh, write this book in which the music and the art have equal space. Um, and it's no small topic that's <laughs> taken me many, many years to do, but I must admit I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's it's a thrilling thing to work on. And, and as as you get to the end of the century... Um, you know, I've I've emphasized more popular music, um, and there's a lot of music hall in relation to Whistler and Sickert um and and other artists who were, you know, really interested in a kind of popular culture uh, mm-hmm. in London. So that's another theme that runs right through it. And then, you know, just just because it might be of interest to some PRB fans listening, um, you know, the people who really rediscovered the pre-Raphaelites were also the people who were kind of rediscovering Victorian uh, popular culture. So, you know, if you think of Sergeant Pepper, the Beatles LP, mm-hmm. uh, with the sleeve designed by, uh, you know, Peter Blake, and um, uh, it's, it's a sort of mishmash of pre-Raphaelite memories in many ways. It pays, plays homage to the, to the Victorian era. Ken Russell made his film about the, um, about Rossetti, you know, just at the same time that the Beatles were, you know, you know, revolutionizing English popular music. So mm-hmm. uh, with with often with reference to Victorian songs and so on. So so I'm trying to look at cross time uh, connections, you know, and then if you look at when museums started to do exhibitions of the major pre-Raphaelites, Mary, uh, Mary Bennett's Burn Jones, I mean, um, Maddox Brown exhibition was, I think, 63. There was a big uh, Burn Jones at the Hayward Gallery, 74, 73, 4, was it? Um, you know, the, the big uh, Holman Hunt show, Mille, all of these shows were at the same time that the right. Beatles were making these records. And it's not a coincidence. It's a, it's an absolutely interesting moment of Victorian revival. Um, so th- I'm hoping to, to pull some of that to the, to the fore. That, I hadn't ever thought about it. And then I'm like envisioning the album covers and I'm like, yeah, I I see it now. <laughs> I see it. I mean, all, they loved Aubrey Beardsley. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, there's the, some of the, the fashion designs in shops like Biba on High Street Kensington were straight out of you know Jane Morris. I mean, pe- people were wearing the same right. sorts of outfits and hairdos, and you know, so it's a popular popular culture responded to the Victorians very favorably in the 60s. Well, uh, and I know, like, you still see it with music, Florence Henderson, uh, mm-hmm. Florence and the Machine, or Kate Bush. Right. And you see these Victorian influences still still in current music. It, it's one of those, it seems like the period just keeps lingering in popular culture in its own way, but morphing through the times. So Absolutely. that... We're doing it at the, um, at the Delaware Art Museum as part of the pre-Raphaelite festival uh this this coming fall um there will be a um I think I can't remember exactly the date October October the 9th maybe November 9th November the, yeah. 9th, November the 9th sorry uh we'll be doing a um a, a recital of Victorian music with the wonderful soprano Lucy Fitzgibbon uh who is a specialist at well she's a specialist at many things actually contemporary music and early music but she's the one person who can actually persuade you that Victorian parlor songs are actually quite wonderful. Um, and she sings them absolutely beautifully. So we'll do some music from the time of the pre-Raphaelites at a live concert on November the 9th at the Delaware Art Museum. So I hope some people might be able to join us there. I am looking forward to it. I just saw that the schedule for that weekend. I had already started making my travel plans. So I was like, oh, no, now I got to make sure I'm there in time for the night. Yeah, through Sunday, <laughs> but it, it'll be amazing to see so many people we've all talked with and done stuff virtually over the last few years in one place. And then the beautiful Rossetti exhibit, beautiful Del Art. I think it'll be a wonderful weekend for a lot of pre-RAF fans. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, I um, always end my interviews with a quick question. What is your favorite pre-Raphaelite work, at least for the moment? Because I know that can change. Oh, gosh, that's really hard. I mean, anyone who knows me would know that I would have to probably default back to back to Ford Maddox Brown's work. But um, so if we, if we take that as kind of my usual answer to that question, I did uh, have the chance with a group of students last summer to go to look at um, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's collection in his house. He very graciously uh, made an exception to his rule and let, let us look at some of the works <laughs> and uh, was was very, uh, very, very kind about that. And uh, you've mentioned Sophie Gray, but that is an extraordinary work. And what struck me looking at it again, having seen it in our exhibition and in the Millet exhibition in 2007, is how small the painting is and how fragile and yet how filled with extraordinary life and a kind of you know one one could almost start to read a sort of tragic quality to it but maybe that's just because we know that Sophie had such such struggles later in her life but um, it is a really remarkable object which sort of transcends um, period and style mm-hmm. and speaks to you so directly so there's a there's a, a temporary favorite before I read the <laughs> Ford Maddox brand. Well, I'm always a fan of Ford Maddox Brown myself, so I I understand. Um, but I want to thank you again for sitting down with me today, and we look forward to seeing you in November at the Pre-Raf weekend. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been great fun to talk, and uh, it's lovely to know that people all over the place are loving the Pre-Raphaelites. Mm-hmm.